Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What up, Cavs Nation? Welcome to another thrilling episode of the Wine and Gold Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Sands, and I couldn't be more excited to be here with you today. It's a new era for the podcast, and I'm absolutely stoked to kick things off with a bang. But before we dive into today's hot topics, let me introduce myself a bit. I'm a proud Ohio University grad with a passion for all things sports. I've had the honor of working with some incredible organizations like the LA Times, USA Today Sports, Major League Baseball, and even produce some podcasts for ESPN. And now, I'm here to bring the excitement, insight, and fun to your beloved Cleveland Cavaliers through Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer as a beat reporter. Now, enough about me. Let's get down to business. Of course, I'm not alone on this journey. Joining me when his busy schedule allows is my partner and tenured Cavs beat reporter. You know him. We all love him. The one and only Chris Fedor. What up, Chris? Ethan, man, what's going on? How are you? Man, I'm chilling at home. I know you've been on the road. How's that going? <laughs> it's great. I love being on the road. It's great to see the country. It's great to hang out with the team and kind of get the vibes around the team and get closer to the team. I miss my son. I miss my wife. I miss my family. But bouncing from city to city is something that I signed up for, and it's one of the perks of the job, and I enjoy it. Yeah, and and you guys get to know Chris a little bit more on today's episode where Chris kicks off his weekly segment that we like to call Hey Chris. Hey Chris is a Q&A mailbag via subtext that you guys can go on subtext, which is our subscription service where you can become a Cavs insider and interact with me and Chris on a daily basis. And you can ask him questions and he will give you an answer like he will today. Chris, do you want to go into a little bit more insight as to what's going on today? Yeah, for sure. I mean, as people know, when I send out a text to them, I ask them to send any kind of questions related to the Cavs that they want answered in more detail than what I would in a normal text response to them. So it can either be on this podcast or it can be in written form on the website at cleveland.com slash Cavs, because, you know, there are certain limitations that you have when it comes to interacting on X or via subtext. You can't really expand as much as you would like to. So I always try and encourage Cavs fans to send questions that would garner a response that would be long, in-depth, in-detail. And it doesn't always have to be about the Cavs. It can just be about fun stuff. Like in the past, somebody asked me to rank my favorite cities to visit. In the past, some people asked me my favorite restaurant of all of the cities where I visit. 
but it's just your way to interact with me in a setting that is going to provide a little bit more of a detailed response than than what 640 characters will allow me to do via subtext. And we actually had a good amount of insiders give Chris a question through the first ever Hey Chris of the season. And we're going to talk about the top four that we selected. And the first one that we wanted to get into was really simple. Whatever did happen to Ricky Rubio? Chris? So here's the thing, Ethan. This organization is is very optimistic by nature. They try and pull out the positives. Even when things are disappointing, even when they're off to a slow start, they're looking at the reasons why they can be better. And this all brings me back to Ricky Rubio. This is a very, very optimistic organization. And I sense zero optimism when it comes to Ricky Rubio returning to this team. I don't know if it's going to happen. They don't know if it's going to happen. There's a lot of uncertainty surrounding his status. And it's like, obviously, he's away from the team. It's an excused absence. He paused his professional playing career to focus on his mental health. He went back to the Barcelona area. So he's had very little engagement with the team, except for their communication being over phone, text, things along those lines. Because the Cavs want to give him the space that he needs away from basketball, away from the team, to focus on the things that he is prioritizing right now, which is his mental health and his family. But like the truth is, he is still a member of this team. He is still taking up a roster spot. He is still getting paid by the Cavs. It's just they don't know when he's going to rejoin the team or if he's going to rejoin the team. And let's look at it from a basketball standpoint, Ethan. The last version of Ricky Rubio that we all saw was one who was basically unplayable in the playoff series against the Knicks. Mentally, he wasn't in a great place because his body was not allowing him to do the things that his mind thought he could do. He was talking about how difficult it was to come back from a second torn ACL, rejoin a team midway through the season, try and find his place, and not really be able to work through some of the growing pains that come with coming back from an injury because the Cavs had big goals and he didn't want to disrupt what they had already built. So Ricky, the player that they got last year, wasn't the version that they were hoping to get this year further removed from the knee issue. But if he comes back in January or February or March, and I think that's a big if right now, he will be somebody, Ethan, he will be somebody who hadn't played meaningful basketball in how long? It's just hard to see him having any kind of impact for this team on the court this year. And during Men's Mental Health Month, we want to highlight how important taking time for your mental health is. But in this situation, it's hard to find optimism in Ricky Rubio returning, not only for the benefit of his health, but also the negative impact that possibly playing and having a poor impact on the court might have on his mental health as well. And we want to be able to just highlight that and make it very well known that men's mental health, women's mental health is extremely important and something that needs to be addressed more. And I'm glad we were talking about this because there's a former Cavs player that actually wrote about his mental health awareness in Kevin Love. And him being on one of the most highly decorated teams with the Cavs and LeBron James and Kyrie Irving and still battling with 
mental health issues is a testament to how it can affect everybody. And so I don't want to brush over how important that factor is into Ricky Rubio's return or potential return or if he might retire. But it isn't a testament to the player that Ricky Rubio was or the human that he is. It's just that people go through things and you got to let people have the time that they need to address situations in their lives. Yes. And, and here's the other thing, too, Ethan. If you think about Ricky, Ricky has been a professional basketball player at a high, high level since he was a teenager. Right. So he knows how good he was and how good he can be. And when he comes back from injury and he can't be that kind of player that he's expected himself to be, it wears on a guy. And it was clear that because he didn't play at the level that he wanted to play at last year when he came back from that injury, it was something that was messing with him mentally. And he was really, really struggling with it. When you've been that great for that long, that consistent for that long, and you aren't that same player, or you can't physically be that same player, it is a hard pill to swallow. I want to move on to the next topic because we have three more of these to go through. And the next one that we saw was, how realistic is it that the Cavs find a forward or a big who can shoot and play the four to close games next to Mobley and Allen? So I think the most important thing going into this is they say not to replace Mobley or Allen, but to play next to them, as we know that Mobley is currently having some issues on the offensive end that he's working through. Chris, what do you think? Well, here's the thing, Ethan. They went out this offseason and they added George Niang for that reason. Right. I mean, like he was a big free agent pickup for the Cavs. He can play the four or the five, can play the three in certain lineups as well. But he gets more exposed on the defensive end because he's got slow feet and he can't really keep up with those kinds of guys. But I mean, after the whole buyout situation with Kevin Love went the way that it did. And then Dean Wade wasn't able to fill the shoes of Kevin Love in part because he wasn't fully healthy at that time. The Cavs looked at it and they said, okay, what can we do this offseason to add shooting and spacing? What can we do this offseason to add somebody who can bring a similar skill set to the one that Kevin Love had that we no longer have? Somebody that can be a little bit more reliable than Dean Wade. And they went out and they spent more than $8 million per year on George Niang. So that's supposed to be his role. He's off to a bad start. He's not shooting the ball the way that he's capable of. He's getting beaten on the defensive end of the floor most nights. There are certain matchups that are better for him defensively than others. Playing against a bully like Julius Randle, that one worked out well for the Cavs, and it worked out well for Niang. But when he gets pulled out to the perimeter and he's got to keep up with the quicker guys at that position, he struggles a little bit. So even though he's off to this slow start, that's the role that the Cavs envisioned for Niang. They envision him at times finishing games next to one of Jarrett or Evan and the Cavs using a four-shooter lineup. Sometimes they envision playing a smaller brand of basketball. No Jarrett, no Evan, Niang at the five, and playing five out. All of those things are still available to the Cavs technically, but Niang has to play better so that he can justify getting those kinds of minutes, especially late in games. And I think that goes perfectly into our next question about has Dean Wade made a case that he should come off the bench ahead of Niang? And to be very fair and very frank, the amount of fouls that 
Dean Wade has caused or forced or anything like that on the defensive end has driven me nuts over the last couple of games because Dean Wade averages 17.8 minutes a game. And to say that through that amount of time, you can pick up six fouls. I get it. In some situations, you are in the game to get fouls because that's what the situation is calling for. But that hasn't been the situation against the Warriors, against the Thunder in the last couple of games. You haven't needed that. To still have Dean Wade only average four points, four rebounds, and half an assist, in my mind, I cannot vouch for him to get more minutes than George Niang, who is averaging six points, four rebounds, one assist. He's picked up five more fouls than Dean Wade so far this year in 60 more minutes. Me thinking of recent history and how much Wade has gotten into foul trouble and made it harder on the front court, especially with Jared Allen dealing with minute restrictions. Currently, I can't think of a reason why Niang would come out more before Dean Wade goes back in the game or Dean Wade go into the game before George Niang. What do you think, Chris? First of all, we have to understand who Dean Wade is as a player, his strengths, his weaknesses, some of the limitations that he has. And we have to understand the same thing when it comes to George Niang. We're talking about, in most cases, the eighth or ninth guy in this particular rotation for the Cavs. They bring different things to the table, and I think some of this is going to be determined based on matchups, based on game situation. Dean Wade is a better defender than Niang. He can keep up better with some of the guys that Niang struggles with. And at this point, not when we're talking about history, but at this point with the Cavs through this stretch of the season, Dean Wade has been a better shooter from the field and a better shooter from three-point range. It doesn't mean he is a better shooter. It means to this point with the Cavs, he has been. You would like to think that there's going to be some positive regression coming from Niang because he is a career 40% three-point shooter. So him shooting 24% from three-point range and hitting the top of the backboard on corner threes isn't going to continue, right? But like, if it continues, here's the problem with Niang. If he's not making shots and he's not bringing that threat on the offensive end, he's still spacing the floor and that's going to help with gravity and stuff like that. But if he's not making shots, it's harder to justify him being out there, right? If Dean Wade isn't making shots... It's easier to justify him being out there because he gives you positional versatility, because he's a better defensive player, because he allows the offense to move a little bit more. It's it's not saying that Dean should take the place of Niang, because I think history has shown you that Niang is going to turn it around. It's just if Niang is struggling with his offense, if he's not knocking down those shots, I can understand why JB would go to Dean Wade in that kind of situation. And JB Bickerstaff has shown that he would go that way by starting Dean Wade over Niang at the beginning of the season when Jared Allen wasn't in and they needed a big. He also started Niang against New York and it worked out really, really well. And Niang played well that night and his defense 
was praised against Julius Randle. But if we're being honest, and this is all small sample size, and you can't put too much stock into these kinds of numbers, but it highlights some of the problems that JB's been dealing with when it comes to figuring out this rotation and who fits best with who and trying to find a level of consistency and stuff like that. Through nine games, with George Niang on the court, the Cavs are being outscored by 41 points by the opponent. That is the worst mark of any player on this roster. So he's got to continue to play better if he's going to get consistent minutes. And if he's going to play the way that he has in these first nine games, I can understand starting to look at other options and asking yourself, hey, in this situation, would it be better to go to Dean Wade? Or in this situation, would it be better to downsize and just go with Max Struess at the four instead of Niang? And even to that sense, I think going back a little bit to the previous question, would you consider going to get another four to replace Niang no. or Wade? No. Okay. I don't think so. Look, I, I mean, I think the thing that they will have to consider looking at at the trade deadline, and this becomes difficult, Ethan, because they don't have a lot of resources. They don't have a lot of trade assets. They don't have a whole bunch of draft capital to just go and throw at somebody because they use so much of it in the Donovan Mitchell trade, and they're very, very, very close to the luxury tax threshold, which is a line that they are not willing to cross. I think based on the situation with Ricky Rubio and Ty Jerome being injured for a majority of the season and them not fully understanding what Ty is or what he can be capable of, I think if there's something that the Cavs are going to really look at at the trade deadline, it's a legitimate backup point guard. Because the plan this year coming in, Ethan, was for Ty Jerome to be Ricky Rubio's understudy. And then maybe next year, allowing Ty to shift into that backup point guard role. Throughout his career, he's been more of a third guard than a backup point guard. So I think if they feel that there's something that they need to add to this team, I think that would be the position that they would look at first. I don't disagree with that. And speaking of what management might do before the trade deadline, Chris, a fan is asking, what is Cavs management thoughts on Evan Mobley's slow start offensively? And I want to point out to this fan that currently Evan Mobley is the fourth highest scorer for points per game for the Cavs behind... Donovan Mitchell, Karis LeVert, and Darius Garland, who, in my eyes, I expected to score more than Evan Mobley on a consistent basis. What are your thoughts? Obviously, he's not doing as much as we would like him to, but to say it's not been effective might be a stretch. Yeah, I think they thought he would be a little bit better on the offensive end, a little bit more consistent on the offensive end. Um, in year three, his numbers are very comparable to year two. Many of his numbers are very comparable to year two, but there are different stylistic tweaks that he's made within his game and within the Cavs offense that are noteworthy, and it shows an offensive evolution, maybe not in the areas that most fans want, which is shooting, either from the mid-range or all the way out to the three-point line, but he's creating more for himself. He's creating for his teammates. He's being used more as an offensive hub where he gets the ball at the elbow or in the post and he goes to work. 
he's grabbing rebounds and he's pushing the pace and he's either initiating or finishing from there. So those are like subtle differences within his game. But but I do think there's a level, not of concern, but of wonder about Evan Mobley, the shooter, and how effective he's going to be this season outside of five feet. And I think it's a legitimate wonder. His numbers drop off a cliff when he shoots the ball outside of five feet. He doesn't look as comfortable when it comes to shooting outside five feet. It looks more like, should I be shooting this? Should I not be shooting this? Why would I be shooting this when Donovan Mitchell or Max Struess or Darius Garland would be shooting it? Because like Evan is somebody who has been programmed his entire life to make the right play and play basketball the right way to contribute to winning. And I think sometimes he feels like an open 15-foot shot for him because of the weaknesses that he has shown and the inconsistency that he has shown with that jumper may not be as appealing as like a contested Donovan Mitchell three. So I think there is some like mental block with Evan when it comes to that specifically. It's not something that is preventing him from being the player that he wants to be or taking that next step. It's just when it comes to shooting the ball, it feels more like an afterthought as opposed to an in-rhythm jumper. And I think that's affecting the efficiency at which he makes those shots. So I think this is a long way of saying that the Cavs understand Evan's limitations at this point in time. They are working with him on those. They have all the confidence in the world that he's going to continue to progress and develop because he works his butt off. He's one of the most tireless workers on this team. But I do think the Cavs expected a little bit more on the offensive end from Evan, especially when it comes to making shots at a consistent rate outside of five feet. And we were talking before the show a little bit about his comparison to players like Victor Wemanyama and Chet Holmgren, especially during the Thunder series. And we were talking about how his lack of offense is what's holding him back from being kept in that conversation of being one of those top seven foot stretch fours that can score and defend because Evan Mobley is one of the best defenders in the league. So there is no argument about that. It's just him not being able to be as efficient on the offensive end as Chet or as Victor Weminyama. Speaking of the Thunder game a little bit, my favorite part of that game was when you tweeted, breaking, Cavs, Evan Mobley made a shot outside five feet. It was really smooth and confident too. Feathery fadeaway. And that tweet, because of how minimum Evan Mobley has shot outside of five feet, got over 28,000 views and 265 likes just because it was hilarious in the mindset of everybody seeing the struggle Evan Mobley has. So if the fans have seen it, management has seen it, the minutes haven't gone down, they know that Evan Mobley is a huge part of this Cavs offense and a huge part of this Cavs team as a whole, especially on the defensive end. So changes might not be made, but we'll see what happens. I think ahead, the Chris. other thing to point out here, Ethan, is that, and J.B. Bickerstaff has said this over and over and over again, and people feel like it's just, well, he's being a coach and he's supporting his guy. Okay, maybe. Or maybe J.B. just truly believes this because I think there is definitely more than just a kernel of truth to it. J.B. has spoken since the beginning of last year about Evan being able to be one of the most dominant players on the court on a nightly basis without putting up huge offensive production. And I do think there's some truth to that. 
On this team, he's not going to score like he's Donovan Mitchell. On this team, he's probably not going to score like he's Darius Garland. Most cases, Ethan, he's going to be the third option offensively, if not the fourth option offensively, if there's a lineup with Darius, Donovan, and Karis LeVert all on the court at the same time. So I just think it's about, when it comes to Evan, I think it's always been about, and will continue to be about, impact over production. Because oftentimes production comes with opportunity. And he's just not going to get 20 shots a night. It's not going to happen. That's going to be the outlier performance. The outlier performance so far for Evan this year is the 33-point night, the night that he took 23 shots against the Indiana Pacers, and the Cavs weren't at full strength that night. They were missing a key piece of that team. They needed him to be a little bit more on the offensive end. They needed him to take more of those shots because Donovan Mitchell was not playing, because Darius Garland was not playing. But most nights, Ethan, it's going to be between like 12 to 16 shots or something along those lines. And when it's like that, it's going to be harder for him to put up those big monstrous numbers. But it's about his impact. The impact sometimes is going to be different than what the box score shows. Because that's who Evan Mobley is. That's who he's always been. And that's who he's going to continue to be. He's going to be a game wrecker on defense. And his offense is going to be more impactful, I think, than sometimes the natural box score will show. And that's okay. Some guys are like that. And that'll wrap up this segment of Hey Chris. Thank you guys for putting in your responses on subtext. We really appreciate it. We will continue doing this series. I believe it's going to be mostly Tuesday that we're going to air these. So we're going to need these on Monday of every week. So I know it's a Monday. I know y'all are tired. You want to get out of bed, whatever. Subscribe to subtext. 14 days free. Let us hear your insider opinions and what you got to say, and we'll get you our responses on Monday's podcast recording that will air on Tuesdays. And so you know that we're recording on Monday, you know that we have not seen the Sacramento Kings game that is happening tonight. So let's go back in time just a little bit. Let's discuss the recent Warriors game and its significance. It was a much-needed win for the Cavs, but what I've noticed recently is that although the bigs in Mobley and Allen are imposing their will on the paint, we know this Cavs team has scored 50 points in the paint against the Warriors to their 34 points, but the front court hasn't come away with a lot of the rebounds, which is alarming to me. They got out-rebounded by Golden State. 55 to 45, and that simply cannot happen. As one of the premier front courts in the NBA, in Jared Allen and Evan Mobley, they have only combined for 21 rebounds over the last two contests. And for bigs who average double digit rebounds like a casual stroll through the park, those numbers aren't going to cut it, especially when Max Struess, who even said before they went on this road trip that he was expecting not to have to do as much rebound work because he had the bigs in the paint that he could rely on. He's averaged more rebounds than they have in the last two games. Max Struess had seven rebounds against the Thunder and then had eight rebounds against the Warriors. It's ridiculous to think that somebody that is five inches or more shorter than the players that are supposed to be dominating the paint has been doing more work. On the rebound side, I won't say doing more work because we know Evan Mobley and Jared Allen are putting in work in the paint and causing havoc and allowing the smaller players to get the rebounds. But what do you think about these numbers, Chris, being 
that Jared Allen and Evan Mobley aren't getting as many rebounds and are still allowing points in the paint. Look, it's a problem, Ethan. It was a problem in the playoffs against the Knicks. I think there are certain matchups that are going to give the Cavs more problems when it comes to finishing possessions on the defensive end and keeping the opponent off the offensive glass. Look out for it against the Kings. The Kings are a team that that is very good when it comes to crashing the glass. Sabonis is a beast under the boards. I just think the Cavs have to make it more of a priority. But sometimes the roster, you have certain weak points, right? And it's whether you can mask them enough to make them not be a detriment to you. And the Cavs were bottom 10 in the NBA in defensive rebound percentage last year. And they are once again near the bottom of the league in terms of giving up offensive rebounds. It's a problem. It's a problem that they need fixed. It starts with Jared Allen and Evan Mobley taking more of the challenge, taking more of that responsibility. It also trickles down to the guards to help out, crash the glass. If Jared and Evan are going to box out their man, then the guards have to come in and they have to clean up and get those rebounds. But I just think it's a flaw of the way that this roster has been constructed. I don't think the Cavs are ever going to be a great rebounding team with both Evan Mobley and Jared Allen because they can get physically pushed around in a different kind of way against teams that that have guys that are capable of doing that. I want to move away from talking about what they can do better because we're going to have this conversation all season. Like, if Jared Allen and Evan Mobley are in the paint together, like J.B. Bickerstaff has said, that defense is built around those two pillars in the paint, that's going to be a constant story. We saw it last year, like you mentioned, and we're going to see it again this year. It's just about who is going to step up in these moments. And I think that Karis LeVert is taking his role as the sixth man the best way he can. He's played out of his mind the last two games. When the offensive production has been lacking in the latter half of the games, it seemed like he's just flipped the switch. He's averaged 25 and a half points over the last two outings, helping the Cavs bounce back against Stephen Curry and the Warriors again. But other than on the offensive end, in nearly eight minutes of guarding him over two games, Levert allowed just 13 points and forced two turnovers against Steph Curry, who was arguably the greatest shooter of all time. And the Cavs got both the wins against the Warriors in their two matchups this season. The first game that they won was the first time that they had won against the Warriors in regular season since 2016. (laughs) It's crazy. But who has stood out to you on the Cavs team for better or for worse this far into the season? Well, Karras is somebody who deserves a lot of credit for the way that he came into this season, right? He was willing to accept a move to the bench full-time. So he could be the full-time sixth man. And I think that the thing that stands out to me, there's a belief of, of what you're going to get from Karras. And obviously, you know, the, the offensive production may be a little bit sporadic, but he's going to provide a little bit of playmaking, shot making, maybe even a scoring punch off the bench. Like that's who he is. That's who he's been throughout his career. The thing that stands out to me is the defense that he has played, Ethan, and you brought it up, and it hasn't just been against Stephen Curry. It's been against other guys, too. If Karras can bring that level of defensive intensity and defensive effectiveness, it limits how much the Cavs need Isaac Okoro, 
Like Isaac's the kind of guy who brings that on the defensive end as well. And if he's giving you enough offensively, you continue to go with Isaac and you say, all right, we're getting great defense and we're not losing a ton on the offensive end. Right. But if he reverts back to the offense that he showed last year, the year before, where it looked like a work in progress, where it looked like he wasn't all that confident when he was hesitating from three-point range. It gives you some comfort that you can go to Karras and you don't completely fall apart on the defensive end on the perimeter. So if Karras continues to defend like this, that's going to be a huge boost to the Cavs because now those assignments don't have to go to Darius Garland, right? Now those assignments don't have to go to Donovan Mitchell. And now you aren't as reliant on the defense of Isaac Okoro. And you get more of a two-way player in Karras that plays, you know, 28 to 32 minutes, as opposed to more of a one-way player in Isaac who plays 28 to 32 minutes. So it can lift the Cavs at both ends of the floor. So Karras stands out to me for sure. And Max Drews has been the best player for the Cavs, not named Donovan Mitchell. Statistically, they are a great team with Max Struess on the court. And, and the funny thing about it is, like, he hasn't even shot the ball well. Not for his standards, anyway. Like, his numbers across the board from a shooting standpoint are down from, from what he has done throughout his career. And even with those shooting struggles, he is finding a way to make a huge impact at both ends of the floor. And I think that speaks to just what he has brought to this starting five to complete the starting five and what he has brought to this team where he's the kind of guy who plays winning basketball. He's the kind of guy who makes things easier on all of his teammates because of his shooting reputation, because of the constant movement and because of the unique skill set that he brings to the table that the Cavs obviously didn't have the last couple of years. I think this is the most complete starting five that the Cavs have had since the last time LeBron was in the building. It's a testament to the work that the Cavs were able to do in the offseason to go get players like Max Struess that can impact the game on a shooting level, on a defensive level, but also just the mindset that he brings to this team and being able to hold the team accountable, especially on this road trip that has been very tiresome for the Cavs and being able to see how hopefully they'll be able to showcase some improvement, not only in the last two games of this road trip, but also when they come back home to face Detroit. But as we talk about how this team is going to improve and players that are making an impact now, I want to go and talk to our man, Jonathan Simmons, about what is going on in the G League with players like Sharif Cooper, players like Imani Bates, and the entire G League initiative that's got the Cleveland charge. And we're going to get into that in just a little bit. So we're going to take a quick break. Remember to go and check out our subtext, subscribe, first 14 days are free, all that good stuff. We'll be back in a little bit to talk to my man, Jonathan. Chris, thank you for joining me as always. And we're going to be right back. All right, and we are back. I'm with my man, Jonathan Simmons. What up, Jonathan? How you doing today? I'm doing great. You know, it's Monday, so I'm just working. But, yeah, I'm, I'm doing well. 
Love to hear it. Love to hear it. He said the grind never stops. And especially the grind doesn't stop for G League players trying to make their mark and trying to get elevated to the league. Can you dive into one of the players that I think everybody in the league is watching out for to see if he's going to make that jump? Sharif Cooper. I mean, he was one of those guys that had an immediate impact at in High School, went to Auburn, didn't get to play majority of the season, but as soon as he got on the court, he was an eye catcher, but he still hasn't made that leap to the NBA. Can you talk about why that might be? Well, there's a couple of things. I think the size aspect of it is, is partially, you know, why he dropped from, you know, being one of the top high school players in the country to, you know, 49th in the draft or wherever he ended up getting drafted in the second round. But I think it's the turnovers and, and defense. I think everybody knows offensively what he can do. He had 25 in the second game of the season. The charge swept the, the Wisconsin herd to open the year. But it's it's you know at the next level it's it's a matter of taking care of the ball and it's it's about being able to play defense and I think those are two things and I think his size being you know part of the you know and being an obstacle that he has to overcome has a little bit to do with it but I think those are the two things that he's going to work on this year to show that you know he can do at the next level and and you know make that leap. So looking at the fact that he's averaging four turnovers a game, but he also is averaging two steals and seven and a half assists. You talk about his transition as a point guard. Who would you compare him to this early in his career as an NBA comparison? Kind of reminds me a little bit of Lou Williams, actually, is the, the first one that comes to mind just because everybody, you know, if you need a bucket off the bench, Lou Williams is your guy. Like, But I think he showed it because, you know, with with Amani and, and Isaiah Mobley playing in the first game of the season, he didn't necessarily take a back seat, but he doesn't have to do as much for the Charts to win the game, right? Whereas, whereas they, you know, they, he doesn't have that help for, for the second game, and, and, you know, he goes off 25, six assists, three boards. But I, I think I think he's taken a step, and I, I'll be surprised after this year if he's still playing in the G League. Yeah, and what is one of the skills that you've seen him have that really stands out to you? For me, I loved watching how he could change speeds from high school, college, NBA. It feels like he always has pure control of the ball, being able to go from slow to fast, fast to slow, stop and go, being able to use the pick and roll, stuff like that. Well, as far as his skills, I think just, you know, his ability to get to the basket as, you know, he's, he's me and him are looking eye to eye. I think that's, that's an incredible thing. Jonathan just wanted y'all to know that he's six foot, but continue. <laughs> definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> you know, it, it's different when you're six feet and you're going into paint and, and finishing around, around six, 11, six, 10, seven feet guys. So I just, I think that ability to, you know, be able to be that three level scorer and get to his spots on the floor, you know, that, that speaks to the control that you were talking about. When we're talking about the NBA, we talk about Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell being maestros to work with Jared Allen and Evan Mobley on uh, pick and rolls and screens and things like that to create open space and get open buckets at the hoop. How do you envision Sharif Cooper working with Imani Bates to kind of have a little bit of a similar setup as a stretch four in Imani and uh, trying to be pure point guard in Sharif Cooper? I mean, I think it's just having another weapon on the floor. You know, Amani finished with 29 in the first game of the of the season and, you know, 7 to 12 from three. And I think just having somebody that can knock down shots can create space for themselves. And then the defense can only cover so many different moving pieces. So if, if Amani has it going and, you know, you have to guard him, you can't help off of Amani. So now it's, you know, there's open lanes to go to the basket. 
when you try and stop Sharif going to the basket, he's got dump offs to Isaiah Mobley and Pete Nance. So it's you know, I think just the more weapons you have on offense, it just it just helps. And you know, it's they're they're a well oiled machine when they when they get going. I agree. And I honestly think that Imani Bates was the steal of the draft this past year with how far he dropped down after his career in college because of how highly he was in high school and his comparison. I think he has a ceiling of being Kevin Durant. That's just me. But I want to know you being in person and being able to watch him live. I mean, I got to see him for a couple of minutes when he got in the game in the Cavs. But can you tell me what you saw from him in that 29-point performance and how he just lit up the floor? I think the biggest thing is just knowing when he has it and and taking full advantage of it is just a huge thing and i think you know he's obviously he's you know he's been the number one kid in the country since since he was a freshman sophomore in high school so he knows when he has the hot hand to do it but that's a gift because when he's on he's not like he's you have to be attached at the hip he's not missing like it was it was seven to twelve i think and you know and it's it's the first game the the wolstein center is going crazy i think it's it's huge for for the charge and i think as far as uh comparison he almost reminds me i don't know if you remember like richard lewis but he oh, almost yeah. reminds me of like a, a skinny richard lewis okay Be, you know katie katie's old old teammate you know again being able to score because it's not just it's not just I've, everybody knows he can shoot and being able to shoot makes him dangerous but it's it's you know he's he's making back cuts and and is cutting off the ball and is moving around without the ball and is a decoy but is is a threat when he doesn't have it it's when him and and Sharif and and Isaiah Mobley and, and Zaire Smith are, are all on on the, the charge are going to be hard to stop this year I think he just needs some more run I, th- I think he's young and we're talking about a kid that has only played two games in the NBA and one in the G League and we already are expecting so much out of him even though he fell in the draft and he's still on the two-way. People expect him to be great whenever he steps on the court. I think the other thing with Amani is that, you know, you heard a lot about like off the court stuff and, and this kind of thing. But since he's been around Cleveland, like he's shown nothing but a want to get better and a desire to just be the best that he, you know what I mean, maximize his his potential. And and I, I, I don't think that there's anything that's going to stop him from doing it. Yeah, it seems like he's locked in. All right. Thank you, Jonathan. That is a wrap for the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. I'm Ethan Sands, your host. Thank you again for everybody for tuning in. Thank you to Chris. Thank you to Jonathan for joining me. Reminder, subscribe to the Subtext channel. Subscribe to Cleveland.com. You get everything that you need for the Cavaliers. You get the charge. You get all those good things. Make sure you subscribe to the Subtext 14 days free. And I promise you, you want to stay on that subscription once those 14 days run out. You won't get tired of us that quick. Thank you guys for tuning in. Stay safe and we out.